Okay. Good morning, everyone. My distinguished panelists. So I am uh, Christina Sainz de Santa Maria. I'm regional manager for Southeast Asia, Pacific, and India for DNV Maritime, sitting here in Singapore. And today I'm going to be the moderator for the discussion regarding fleet renewal options and strategies in order to ensure long-term competitiveness. And with me, I have five distinguished panelists. So I have uh, Fergus Ellie, head of Maritime Enterprise, BHP. Uh, and as head of Maritime Enterprise uh, at BHP based in Singapore, Fergus is passionate about delivering decarbonization technology and commercial solutions to improve global supply chains. As BHP moves cargo is along its commodity supply chain using bulk, break bulk, wet and container freight, it feels it can play a leading role in decarbonizing the maritime industry while driving safe and efficient business solutions. Then I have uh, Yvette van der Sommen, uh, Director Asia Pacific for Value Maritime. Yvette uh, started in the maritime industry uh, in, uh, as a relationship banker at ABN AMRO Bank in 2012 and then joined uh, Value Maritime in 2021, where she's responsible for expanding the company's footprint in the Asia Pacific. Uh, I understand that Value Maritime uh, developed uh, the filtry system, which is based on a unique technology that, in addition to sulfur, it actually filters ultra-fine particulars and CO2 from the air. And uh, I am sure we will hear more from Yvette on how can we apply these type of solutions uh, in order to, to, to decarbonize the, the, the industry. Then uh, I have uh, Stamatis uh, Santanis, Chairman and CEO of Synergy Maritime uh, Holdings. Uh, he joined uh, Synergy in 2012 and led its significant, significant growth uh, uh, to a world-renowned uh, pure-play capsize company. Uh, but it's also a founder and chairman and CEO of United Maritime Corporation, which is an independent, uh, diversified public shipping company, which was initially established as a subsidiary of Synergy. He has more than 24 years of experience in the shipping and finance and uh, previously held uh, senior management positions in other prominent private and public shipping companies. Then we have Hing Chao, executive chairman of uh, Wa Kuang Maritime uh, Transport Holdings. And uh, since uh, 2019, Hing Chao has held that position. Uh, Wakwong Maritime Holdings is one of Hong Kong's leading private-owned uh, owned ship owners, uh, which has operated in global shipping for seven decades. Uh, Wakwong owns and operates a diversified fleet of ships, in addition to offering full range of technical and commercial management services to its customers and partners. And uh, last but definitely not least, we have Shmuel Joskovitz, Chief Executive Officer of uh, Express Feeders. Uh, Shmuel joined uh, Express Feeders in 2016 as a CFO uh, before stepping up in 2020 to become their CEO. Uh, I don't know if you are aware, but uh, Express Feeders is actually the largest independent common carrier in the world, uh, providing a wide geographical coverage. Uh, with no containers on its own, the company says it provides only service and not competition to our customers. 
So with the introduction being made, let's start the conversation. And I would like to, to, to start with you, Shmuel. And uh, you were one of the first ones that ordered uh, methanol fuel vessels back in November 2021. Now methanol is becoming uh, very hot in terms <laughs> of ordering. So I am sure everyone in the audience and certainly ourselves uh, are curious on understanding what made you go for it. The logic initially was not methanol, to be honest. Uh, we started uh, the decision making. We operate uh, uh, about 35 vessels in Europe, uh, feeder vessels. And when we looked at the fleet, uh, we estimate that the average age of uh, a feeder in Europe uh, next year, when we get our uh, vessels, will be 19 years. Uh, that got us thinking that it's unsustainable uh, and we need to, uh, because there were many changes in the market over the last 10 years, mainly uh, the disappearance of the Trump owners, the European Trump owners, so there was no uh, new supply of vessels and we said uh, that this is, if we want to continue to operate, we are the ones who need to operate and we started to design a vessel uh, independently and not to take a shipyard design. And the target was that the vessels will be 50% uh, more efficient on uh, a gram per TU mile than existing feeders. Then when we got to the design uh, that we are, were happy with, we said, okay, so they are going to operate in Europe. Europe uh, are certainly the geographical area that takes uh, uh, decarbonization uh, most seriously. And since we call a lot of small ports, which are actually uh, city ports, we were worried that there is a risk that one day, not in the near future, they might become obsolete simply by uh, city councils deciding uh, not to let uh, vessels burning hydrocarbons, fuels, uh, call them. And then we said, what are our options? And to be honest, we didn't need uh, too much analysis because there were only two options, uh, either LNG or methanol. And for a small, um, for a small feeder, meth uh, uh, LNG tanks take too much space. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got to methanol. Yeah. No, but it's, uh, it's incredible and you will have them out in the water quite yeah. soon, right? So yeah. We, we, the discussions uh, to make the decisions, you know, there was no certainty because at the time, I think Maersk placed the order in August uh, or September, and we placed it, as you said, in November. So uh, there was an element of risk, but uh, if we go back uh, to these times, uh, there was, as I said, no, not too many choices, and uh, you can't build a single fuel hydrocarbon vessel to operate in Europe uh, for 25 years and believe that you can, uh, uh, it, it will stay there. Oh, thank you so much and we look forward to following up those vessels <laughs> and the experience you, you gain because I'm sure it will be extremely helpful for the, for the industry uh, as such. Uh, let's go to you, Fergus, uh, as a charter. So how heavily do factors such uh, environmental friendliness uh, weighing when you are, you know, procuring, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the charters uh, when it comes to fuel and technology. 
Yeah, thanks, Christina, and, uh, and thank you to the uh, to the Capital Link team. Ah, oh, that's better. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Capital Link, for having us along, and, uh, and and thanks for allowing us to share our thoughts. So, I think the first thing to call out is that, uh, as BHP is one of the world's largest dry bulk charterers, we're not actually a vessel owner. Um, but that's why we're very uh, very privileged to be along for this discussion today, uh, with with my esteemed panelists here to to talk about the vessel owners and talk about that incentivisation. We're, we're extremely passionate about making sure that as charterers, we're, we're taking our responsibility seriously um, and, that, and that those decisions that vessel owners have to make to replenish their fleet are not being done alone. That it is an ecosystem approach, as we've heard this morning. It is very much a collaboration. Uh, and so we, we want to make sure that the, the focus is not just on the vessel owners to make those difficult decisions about how the future fleet uh, and their, their fleet looks. Um, so absolutely investing in, in environmental um, technologies, uh, modernising the fleet are critical, not just uh, to meet our Paris Align goals collectively, uh, but to make sure our global trade lanes move in a sustainable way um, and, and fundamentally keep, keep the world moving. Um, so as charterers, we have a big role to play. Uh, we want to work in collaboration with vessel owners and, and help uh, make those decisions easier. Uh, we're not alone. We, we see that it's a joint collaboration between the vessel owners, between charterers like ourselves, um, fuel providers, regulators. Everybody has a part to play, as mentioned on the previous panel, all the way through to the, the end users. Uh, who ultimately will make a decision um, how they want to participate in these, in these decisions and the energy transition. So at, at BHP, we actively um, look for a, a fuel mix uh, and solutions that work on our trade lanes. We think the future state is a, a multi-fuel uh, solution, probably defined by region and what works on specific trade lanes. So we try not to anchor ourselves on one solution. Um, the example, I guess, would be in recent years, working with DNV and yourself, Christina, um, to make the decision to provide that demand, provide the demand for LNG-fueled vessels on our commodity supply chain uh, between Australia and, and Asia, um, to focus on a bunkering hub like, uh, like Singapore, to work with, with partners as we did and, and bring those vessels to market, and we now have our full fleet operating. Um, and we see LNG as a great transition fuel in that space. We really like that model, where we can help create the demand and help make those decisions easier uh, and spread the risk um, through the ecosystem. So that's how we approach it, and, uh, and that's how we want to make those um, decisions as, a, as an ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it was, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we really need those uh, first movers. I think the industry really uh, needs them, but it's also very important that we try to get a level playing field so that uh, the risks and everything is yeah, distributed through the, through the ecosystem, as you said, uh, Fergus. Thank you. So, um, Stamatis, considering all the uncertainties, you know, that we have in the industry, what would make you order a new vessel with new technology, innovative technology, or new fuels? Tell us, please. Well, thank you, and um, thanks very much for having us here, and congrats to Nicolas and Capital Link. Uh, I'm very privileged to be in this uh, very esteemed uh, panel. Uh, for us, um, right now, it's completely out of the question. I don't think it makes any sense uh, to consider alternative fuels uh, on the capes uh, for various reasons. 
Uh, number one, it's a matter of feasibility and also a matter of financial proposition. When I say feasibility, I don't really mean it cannot happen. You can all make a prototype ship, you can all make uh, one sample, you can all make ships here and there, but you know, when we talk about a fleet of 13,000 uh, dry bulk ships out there, how do you replace all those ships? How do you find the prevailing fuel? How do you find the crews to operate those ships? So, you know, before starting making, uh, you know, exercises on a piece of paper, we have to consider whether that's feasible or not in respect of, you know, the actual technology being implemented on board the ships. And how do you replace this huge amount of dead weight out there? I mean, BHP is transporting 300 million tons a year, and the overall trade, uh, as far as CAPES is concerned, is about 2.2 billion tons a year. How do you replace all those ships? It's in my mind, first of all, we have to consider the feasibility, and second, and most important, of course, is the financial proposition. The, the markup on a new building ship to install alternative technologies like LNG or methanol or whatever is at least 12 to 15 million dollars, or even 20 million dollars. Mm -hmm. First of all, the price differential before, uh, between a 10-year-old ship and a new building is already double the price. So you're paying double the price to order a ship which makes exactly the same amount of money <laughs> like a 10-year-old ship. So first of all, why are you going to do it? And second, why are you going to pay a markup of another 10, 15 million dollars to install an alternative fuel? Ask BHP here if they're going to pay more for a ship like that. They don't. So we go to the charters and we've been in discussions with many of our clients and say, are you going to fund this? And the answer is, what's the FFA? And the FFA is $14,000 a day. How can you build a $75 million or an $80 million ship when you're going to make $14,000 a day for the next five years? No financial sense. So, you know, we have to provide both the, the feasibility solution and the financial solution before any shipping company in the right minds, you know, get into this kind of decision. No, thank you, and absolutely, and I think it has been mentioned before, right, that there's no no solution that fits all, and it makes, it, I mean, if it, if it has to be sustainable, it has to have a financial sense at some point as well, right? So, uh, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I think it's also important to to, to, to hear those stories, right? Uh, so so thank you so much for, for sharing. Uh, Hincha, over to you. So which actions have you taken uh, aiming at improving the, the, the competitiveness and um, sustainability of your fleet that don't relate uh, directly to alternative fuels? For our existing tonnage, there's actually uh, quite a few things we can do and are doing. First of all, I believe decarbonization has to be data-driven. We have to truly understand the environmental performance of our assets. And therefore, one of the first steps we took around 2019 is starting working with tech company. So essentially, you know, startup um, companies that look at your, the generation of data, um, work for classification sites to make sure that um, the data crunching is accurate. So, uh, and from there, we derive hopefully fairly accurate uh, calculation for EEXI, CII, et cetera. And from there, um, there are basically three pathways I can see to decarbonization um, without going into future fuels. Um, first of all, it's uh, operational measures. As we all know, um, smart operations, uh, reducing um, unnecessary um, waiting time at ports, etc. It's very, very uh, important to uh, CI rating, but also smart navigational um, measures 
will essentially improve fuel consumption. So that makes sense both for ship owners, charters, and of course from a CII envi environmental perspective. Um, environmental uh, improvement on ships also take place through um, technical measures related to operational measures is smart shipping, which is something that we believe in quite strongly, which is why for all our new assets, we want them to be smart ships. And this is a place where we apply pressure on classification society. If we're building ships, if you want to class work well, please, can you provide smart class and up to our standards? Uh, beyond that, technical measures. Um, I think technical measures have come a long way. Of course, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, all the manufacturers will be telling you what they do, which is very hard to, uh, to test, will reduce your environmental footprint, will enhance your efficiency by 5%, sometimes 4%, 3%. As we know, sea conditions are extremely complex. How to actually test it? Mm -hmm. But I believe that a lot of cases have now been put into water. Um, we see and we have heard from um, friends within industry that certain measures indeed do yield dividends. Uh, for example, uh, hull blasting and perhaps applying not only a normal coat, um, but uh, something like a silicon uh, coating, particularly for larger vessels, could uh, enhance environment performance of ships. If we talk about um, energy reduction, then retrofitting propellers of the right size will also yield dividend in that regard. So I think there's actually a huge amount we can do. And I know you have further questions later on about carbon capture, so maybe I'll stop there. But that's something we have looked at mm -hmm. as well. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I think it's, uh, I totally agree on everything that uh, we can uh, gain in terms of efficiencies uh, that, uh, yeah, should, yeah, we should try to apply it uh, as soon as possible. So, uh, Iber, uh, I would like to hear your views regarding, you know, how, how can a company balance uh, trying to remain competitive, uh, trying to uh, improve their, you know, environmental footprint, uh, at the same time all the uncertainties that come with the new technologies and new, new fields. What are your views on that? Um, thank you, uh, Christina. Yeah, I think there are multiple ways to roam here. So um, besides the available technologies, we obviously need to look at the regulatory framework um, and how this affects uh, these technologies. If a carbon tax, for example, is implemented worldwide, not only in Europe, but worldwide, then the, all decarbonization technologies will have its own business case. So that is what we should hope for to be implemented on short term. But having said that, um, and assuming the current uh, regulatory framework, uh, we should look at uh, technologies which can be implemented today and give the vessel a competitive uh, advantage over other vessels, but also gives the ship owner an um, uh, optionality, so flexibility mm -hmm. to either go for the option or not, and also be future-proof. So uh, specifically with the, with the uncertain landscape at the moment, as is already addressed multiple times earlier, but it's important to have this optionality for, for all your vessels because you don't know what is going to happen. Um, so what the solution is will differ per vessel, per vessel type, per uh, strategy of the company. But how I see it and what could be one of the solutions is indeed uh, carbon capture. So we have uh, with Value Maritime developed a carbon capture system which is combined with a uh, sulfur removal uh, system. So this gives you uh, the benefit of the exhaust gas cleaning system 
which I think is important to have. If there's no business case, as you also rightfully mentioned, it will be really difficult to push these technologies. So it should be either from a regulatory perspective or a financial business case on its own, which our system has because it's combined with a sulfur removal system. And if carbon tax is implemented, this uh, business case will improve further. Um, second one is that it should have optionality. So you can choose to either go for carbon capture or not, or you can start using it when it is financially attractive. And it should also be uh, flexible towards future regulations, but also future fuels. So uh, the system can also uh, operate on methanol, for example, but also on bio uh, fuels and, uh, and the likes. Um, and I, I really see carbon capture and all other technologies uh, evenly important, actually. I think we should combine them and make sure that we act today or as soon as possible, actually, because the longer we wait, the harder it will get to uh, achieve the, the goals that we all have, hopefully, uh, together. Thank you so much. Uh, Stamatis. Over to you, but obviously the rest, please also feel free to chip in if you if you have uh, opinions about this. So many in the industry are holding off, right, of uh, ordering new vessels due to the uncertainties. And they are uh, choosing to go for upgrading their current fleet, right? But, uh, but the, the fact as well is that that current fleet is aging. So how long do you think this strategy can last? Well, um, that's an excellent question. First of all, as we all know, the order book on the Cape size segment is the lowest of the last 20 years. And that is for a very good reason. And that very good reason, as I mentioned before, is the feasibility and the financial proposition. So you cannot be asked to pay for something which costs double the price of a 10-year-old ship, especially when you don't know about the prevailing technology and when you don't have the financial means to do that. So as a result, the fleet is actually aging a lot. The current fleet average age is at 13.6 years, and in 2025, it's going to be at 15.6 years. So we're talking about a highly um, overaged fleet. Uh, and unless something drastically changes, we will see the same effects like we recently saw in the tankers and we saw in containers, that it's years and years of underinvestment in the segment and that is going to move and push rates at significantly higher levels, which of course finally after many, many years of bad markets is something that we anticipate. But before we talk about new buildings and building the ship of tomorrow and uh, the methanol, ammonia, or whatever that may be, let's all discuss what we are doing for the existing fleet. As Mr. Roberto Custa said before, how many companies in the room and how many companies globally actually invest on their own existing fleet. Um, I heard about, uh, you know, silicon paints before. We are now putting silicon paints on all of our ships. We invest in energy-saving devices for many, many years. We invest in hardware, uh, sorry, in software since 2015, and we actually do have the artificial intelligence software uh, of Mr. Kousas and the deep sea that we said before. How many companies globally are actually doing that as a percentage? Is it 10%? Is it 15%, 20%? What, what is it? So before we talk about building new ships and new technologies and things that will change 
um, marine propulsion as we know it for the last 50 years, let's talk about the basic steps. We cannot go from A to Z, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> in just a, you know, a quick move. We have to take it step by step. So before the industry is ready about the vessels of tomorrow and new technologies and ammonias and hydrogen and whatever that may be and the cost associated with all this super expensive exercise, let's see what we do in the existing fleet. Let's test the water. Again, hardware. How many companies are actually improving their own ships? How many? Number two, software. How many ships, uh, how many companies have <clears throat> excuse me, dedicated performance departments. We at Synergy, we have a dedicated performance department consisting of four people only doing and monitoring the ships through various metrics and most importantly through artificial intelligence. So before we actually do, um, let's say, any feasibility study about anything we do in the company, on a very sophisticated basis for years now, we assess what's the cost, how much is that going to save, and at the end of the day, the basic principle is speed and consumption. This is what is going to drive the CO2 emissions. So the faster you go, the double you emit. It's, it's pretty mm -hmm. simple. So we're talking about billions and trillions of investments here to save what, 10, 15% or 20% of the global emissions? You can do that by investing on the existing ships. So, I'm not trying to question the point of the overall exercise. All I'm thinking is that before we go from A to Z, let's think about the interim steps. Let's see what we can do in the existing ship. And when we're ready mentally as companies and you know the ships as crews, then we can move to the next step and see how we can finance. Thank you so much. Very yeah, very interesting. And I agree. We need to we need to really work on the on the existing uh, ships. Uh, Shmuel, over to you. So do you actually think that we can use uh, the uncertainty surrounding the new fields and technologies to one's advantage? I'm not sure uh, that you can use it as an advantage, but I think at least in container uh, shipping, there will be a fundamental change because of the regulation, starting from CII and going forward uh, also to the change uh, of fuels. In the past, uh, if you look at Express Feeder's fleet, probably be between 2010 and 2018, we hardly had any variable cost. All our vessels were chartered. All of them were for very, very short time. You can always re-deliver. It's an incredible business model. No fixed cost. Uh, this is unsustainable in the future. I don't see how in four or five years uh, you can do in containers a, a three months charter because how does the owner uh, manages the CII or whatever will be the uh, regulation then? It has to be integrated between the ship owner and the operator and you will probably see much longer uh, time charters and much closer collaboration between the owner and operator. And this is where we see it, others can see it differently, we see that there will be an advantage to an owner operator and that's why we've built up our uh, fleet of uh, owned vessels. Of course, we have to admit that also the good times in shipping, uh, in container shipping helped us do that. But uh, we really think that uh, going forward, 
being an owner operator is an advantage because you can plan, right? If we, uh, I'll just give a simple example. We run a service between uh, Jeddah and Port Sudan. There is no way you can run this service with anything less than an E rating on the vessel. Which owner will charter the vessel to us in the future? We, being an owner, of course, the current CII allows us to play around with our vessels. We can move vessels between trade and average it out. And these kinds of things uh, in the future will no doubt uh, force the collab a much tighter collaboration between owner and charters. Mm. Thank you. Very good point. Uh, Hing Chao, over to you. Uh, what technology investments can be made now that you believe are future-proof? Uh, first of all, for the new assets that we are um, investing into, it's important to have optionality. Um, while you know, future fuels, for, especially for the smaller dry bulk sectors, probably methanol will be quite important. Um, ammonia, uh, up to a certain degree, maybe to uh, Campsomax, Panmax, smaller, not so certain. LNG, um, the future of LNG is still being debated. So at this moment in time, it's important to build flexibility when you're investing into assets. Is it the right time? And I will agree with uh, my other distinguished uh, panelists here. One, as a ship owner, one has to be very, very careful and you, have, you can't wear the financial hat strong enough for such calculations. But flexibility is important and when you're building and ordering the assets without thinking about the future, then I think you're in the wrong business. However, keeping an open mind and not trying to dictate what are the fuel you want, because as ship owners, ultimately, you won't be able to make that choice unless you're sailing within a highly controlled, um, maybe for certain sectors, uh, VOOC between China and Brazil, or if you're sailing within port, otherwise, you're really at the mercy of conditions outside of your control. So I always say, when you invest, if you pay a little bit more for flexibility, that's what we do. Um, also, we're investing in technology. So on the one hand, um, smart navigational um, softwares, that's something we're investing into. We are also looking into uh, investment into carbon. So in the previous um, panel, there was quite a bit of discussion about carbon credit. So as a contrarian, uh, Wellcom, we are one of the few companies uh, that believe in the voluntary offset market, and we are doing um, scope one offset. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Fergus, I mean, we have, we have heard the, the, the role of the charter now, uh, over, the, over the morning and, and now. Uh, I would like to, to, to hear that you share your views uh, regarding, do you see any specific fuel having an advantage in terms of uh, infrastructure and technology? Yeah, thanks, Christina. I think to extend from Hinchal's comments, which I totally agree with there, that that we're very much moving from a, a historical world of a homogenous fuel environment to a, a heterogeneous fuel environment, and it's really going to be dictated by by regions and specific trade lanes. And I think that's where we need to focus all our en collective energy is not to find the single solution, mm. but to find the solution from a fuel perspective, from a vessel perspective that is um, the most commercially viable for that particular particular trade lane and I certainly hear uh, Samantha's comments earlier around the, the business case yeah. and, and it's a discussion we, we have to keep having because if we don't keep pushing of course uh, as the point is well made we simply won't make the change to the, the enormous fleet that we have. 
but we can do that by having the discussions um, on the specific trade lanes where the solution and where the gap is the smallest. And it's, it's really pleasing to hear some of the stories, uh, Hing Tao, Yvette, others around some of those incremental opportunities of, of energy reduction that when you combine with some, some future solutions are going to close that gap quicker. Uh, a good example uh, in our space uh, more recently is uh, we've, we've partnered a lot over the recent years in trialling biofuel and now we're moving with our partners to move into a state of trying to identify the aggregation of demand so that we can help bring that, the cost of that fuel down. So Singapore's a great example where we can create a really strong and, and large demand base for biofuel as one example, as a, as a transitionary fuel. We have the collective opportunity to bring down that cost uh, and make and close the gap. Um, and, and we're seeing more and more when we have those discussions, it's not just the vessel owner and the charterer, there are end customers that are willing to have that discussion as well. So great opportunity there, we think. Um, you know, there'll be many energy, uh, energy source solutions and, and we think definitely not trying to um, solely focus on one outcome. Uh, wind assist technology is something we're working on where we see, again, energy reduction combined with some small um, efficiencies on the vessel can really start to give you those percentage points that make a difference mm. uh, and, again, close the gap. More longer term, uh, on our trade lanes for BHP, we are uh, doing a lot of work to investigate the hydrogen ammonia solution uh, we're doing some work with the GCMD right now, the, the Global Centre for Maritime Decarbonisation here in Singapore, to understand at a much more operational and safety level the, the toxicity and safety concerns. If we can overcome that, uh, that, that condition, then we can start working on the commercial viability. And we think that's uh, certainly, as I say, on our trade lane, an opportunity that, um, that exists. We also recognise that methanol and other fuels are absolutely suitable from what we're all learning in particular trade lanes as well. So not anchoring ourselves on one solution, um, finding where the gap is the, the smallest to close and working with our partners to close that even further. Then we can get the end state, accelerate the end state we're after, make it commercially viable and make the business case stand up along the value chain. Thank you, thank you, very good points. Um, Yvette, uh, we haven't touched upon carbon capture, but I mean, we know that it's gonna be part of the solution. So what challenges do you foresee with it and how, yeah. which role do you see it playing in the decarbonization of the maritime industry? Yeah, I think there are a lot of pilots for, for carbon capture technologies and, and to some extent there's a lot of open overlap between te these technologies but also some differences. If I speak for myself because I, I know our technology best but our technology, it works, and it's not that um, we just capture carbon and put it, uh, give it to shore and then it's released again, what uh, some people uh, are communicated, uh, communicating. But uh, so the technology is there. The next step now is to uh, have an infrastructure globally to offload the CO2 and also reuse it. So that is where uh, actually all parties uh, come in and we should really uh, collaborate to make this happen because we cannot just have an outlet in uh, Rotterdam where we have actually outlets, but worldwide so we can uh, offer that to our clients. And I think it's a bit contra contra contrary to what my uh, panelists here are saying, but I think we should step away to seeing decarbonization as an actual cost because Assuming that uh, the regulatory landscape will 
be stricter, and I think we can all agree that this will happen if it's in one year or five years or 10 years, then um, CO2 emissions will come at a cost. So taking uh, the base, changing the base case actually, but really seeing reductions as a financial business case, it will be attractive for all vessel owners to do something with it. And then the uh, financial benefits should drip through all um, stakeholders in the value chain, making um, also offloading CO2, distributing it onshore, uh, whatever uh, happens to the CO2, makes this a business case on itself. So we should really keep that perspective in mind instead of only seeing it at, as a cost, because it, it will be a cost anyway, so better than just the changing the uh, base level and make use of it. I would like yes, to please, jump yes. in here, uh, Christina, if I may. Of course. Um, actually, I cannot agree with uh, Yvette more. Um, I think, you know, the maritime industry, and indeed around the world, there's a lot of bias of looking at CO2 as uh, some sort of pollution. But in, in effect, CO2 is naturally occurring, existing in our ecosystem. If we adopt the lens, the perspective of a truly circular economy, how to make use of CO2 as something that is of value to us, to Earth, I think that's important. Yeah. Um, going back to what Sam says, was saying, if to keep our assets going, um, there will be a new, imagine a new ecosystem that is uh, with CO2 transportation and utilization and storage at the center. CO2 will become a highly valuable resource for the generation of future methanol ecosystem. So I think we, it's time for us to look at the world differently. Yeah. And I think you know, there is continuity between keeping our existing fleet going and the green transition we all imagine for the world tomorrow. Thank you so much. We have one minute and 20 seconds. I don't know if there's any question in the room for the panelists. Otherwise, I will ask my last question that has to be super sharp answers from everyone. No, then I use this opportunity. Uh, so uh, how do you see the shipping industry in 20 years? H having into account you know, all the, all the um, uh, transitions that, we are, that, that, that the shipping is uh, experiencing in terms of digitalization and decarbonization. Really sharp. Very sharp, Christina. Right? A very optimistic case that we'll see a zero emission future state in that, uh, in that timeline. And it will absolutely exist of a, a heterogeneous, very mixed uh, fuel base um, and, and a sustainable uh, business case for everybody in the value chain. Very optimistic. Thank you, very good. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's going to be a combination of uh, hardware and software at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a combination of both. Uh, I'm not certain what the future will bring. Uh, I just hope that the next 20 years will bring way more advancement as compared to the previous, not 20 years, but the previous 50 years. Mm. Thank you, Stamatis. Yvette? Yeah, unfortunately, I do not have any new insights uh, after your, your comments already, but I do think that indeed it will be a mix of all technologies, and unfortunately, I do not believe that fossil fuels will be uh, gone in 20 years, but we need to find uh, the best solutions to cope with it. Thank you. I would say to look forward into the future, we have to also look back into the past. I mean, um, the transition we're going through today reminds me of the transition that we're going through between uh, sail, 
and STEAM. Um, I mean, this is as a drastic uh, a change that we're going through today. Will shipping remain? Absolutely. Uh, we'll continue to transport cargoes. A lot of cargoes that will transport in 20 years' time with something that I mentioned, perhaps a new CO2 uh, global supply chain. Uh, some of the companies already, already are looking into this. Um, methanol transportation of ammonia, hydrogen more locally, um, and new infrastructure offshore of solar and offshore wind. All of this will happen and unfold in front of us over the next 20 years. But shipping will remain familiar in other essential ways. Thank you. Shmuel? My fellow panelists described the future, so I just want to highlight one thing of how we get there. In shipping, what we need is uh, clear uh, guidelines and decisions. And once this is set, uh, we as an uh, industry will, will meet it. And this is what I'm hoping that soon there will be clarity of what we need to achieve and when. And then I'm quite confident that we will achieve it. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, the audience, for listening to us.